Hello, Lakeview family, and welcome to this second edition of School of the Word Online. We're going to be continuing in our series on waiting well, that is, looking at what the Bible teaches us about waiting. Last week, we looked at Mark 13, which uh, Jesus directed us there to see trials and tribulations as leading to his definite return. Um, And this week, we're going to be considering another passage that teaches us about wading through the difficulties of this world. Romans 8.18 may be a familiar passage to many of you, and and I hope it is. Um, I hope it's something that you know how to just pull out when you get a late-night phone call or just walking through a difficult season, um, or maybe when you're just stuck at home with your children or spouse for too long, um, that you know that Paul tells us, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's just a helpful thing to be able to recognize in moments of suffering that this is not our hope, but it is coming and it is so much greater than whatever we're experiencing right now. But I recognize at the same time that that this passage can sound like just sort of a slogan. Like, like Paul is basically just telling us to hukuna matata, don't worry about it. None of this is a big deal. It's, it's just, just don't worry about what's going on right now. Right? We, we kind of all, I think, probably have a friend or maybe you know somebody who's, who's just always putting a positive spin on whatever they've got going on in their life. And, um, and if you don't know them very well, from a distance, it can kind of seem like they just have a great uh, perspective on life and um, really know how to get through difficult times. But if you get a little closer, you know that person well, you recognize uh, that, that that positivity is not coming from a deep place of joy and hope, but is, is kind of a, a sort of desperate attempt for them to convince themselves that they feel better than they really probably do. It, it can be sort of just like uh, a coat of paint painted over a bunch of rotten Boards. From a distance, the bright colors might make you think that everything's okay, but if you get closer, you can see that there, there's really deep problems here that are not being dealt with. And, and if you just pick up Romans 8.18 and, and don't know anything else about it, that, that might be how this sounds to you. That this is just a, a coat of paint over real problems. It's, it doesn't really help me in the present sufferings that I'm enduring What I hope to see this morning as we walk through the whole context of this chapter is that Paul is not offering us just a thin slogan to slap on to difficult times. He's got a deep hope and a deep reason to have that hope behind it. So as we consider this full chapter, we're going to walk through a number of the verses here again like we did last week. Um, I hope you can see that the, the hope being offered here is fitting and sufficient for whatever suffering you might be experiencing right now. As you come into Romans 8, you you recognize Paul has come to the end here of his conclusion about how the gospel is that we are saved not by the flesh obeying the law, but by the spirit that God has given us. In Romans 7, uh, verses 18 and 19, Paul has been kind of lamenting the weakness of the flesh by saying, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. 
And in verse 24, he just kind of throws up his hands and says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in Romans 8, he celebrates by finding the answer in God sending his spirits to do what our flesh could not. This is Romans 8, 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's so much to celebrate I could unpack in those passages, but but what I want to see for this morning is that Paul is giving us two very clear categories. On the one hand, there is our weakened flesh. And on the other, there is his new spirit living in us. And he's going to identify, there's actually kind of a a tension between these two. This is how he says it in verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So you can see there's, there's two clear ways to be here. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. And then Paul anticipates an objection that you might have, or a question at least. This great Paul, I want to live in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to have God's righteousness in me, and yet, I have flesh. My daily experience is full of my own weakened flesh. I still get tired. I get hungry. I have desires come up from inside me. I'm vulnerable. I can experience sickness, pandemic, um, pain, The anxiety of of what's going to happen. And my moods change without consulting me at all. I'm, I'm vulnerable to abuse and physical powers, other people's flesh in this world. What does it mean to live in the spirit when I'm also very clearly in my flesh? How do these two things relate to one another in my daily life? This is a question the church has wrestled with in a number of different ways. And and you find a number of different solutions people have come to for how we are to relate the spirit to the flesh. Some sort of make the spirit hostile to the flesh. And so to live by the spirit, they need to minimize or destroy as much of the flesh as they possibly can. You might go live out in a, a monastery or in a pillar in the middle of the desert you give away all of your possessions as much as you can. You live on the bare minimum so that in every day you can diminish and minimize the desires of the flesh. Some people don't go to such extremes, but they, they sort of in their thinking and in their living disconnect the idea of the flesh and the spirit. Right? It's as, as long as the, the flesh isn't impeding the spirit. It's not, it's not getting in the way of my time with God, of my reading his word, of my fellowshipping with his people, of all the things the spirit is doing in my life. Then whatever I do in my flesh, whatever I do with my hungers and my desires and my um, exercise routine or my vacations and the way I spend my money, as long as that's not getting in the way of the spiritual stuff, then it's fine. I can just kind of ignore it. Just put it on the side. They might not say that out loud, but if you look at the way they're living, it's kind of the way that they they deal with this tension. Focus on the spirit, ignore the flesh. Uh, Consider for a moment, how do do you relate the flesh to the spirit? Are you hostile 
to your flesh? Are you skeptical about anything that comes from inside of you or from inside of other people? Or, or do you disconnect these ideas? And, and you're, you've kind of got a category for the spiritual and then a category for the everything else. And, and they're really, in your practical life, just two different things. I ask that question because I think it's going to matter when you come to read Romans 8.18. How you see your daily experience of the flesh and the spirit is going to affect the way you see your present suffering and your future hope of glory. Right? If, if you think these things are disconnected or hostile to one another, then the way you think about your experience in the flesh of the present sufferings may seem disconnected from the hope that the Spirit is going to work one day in you in eternal glory. So how does Paul resolve this question? I said he's going to anticipate it, and, and what does he say about how the flesh and the Spirit relate? Well, he's going to find his pattern in the person of Christ. Let's continue in verse 10. He says, But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul sees that the pattern of how the Spirit relates to the flesh was set by Jesus, who came not only in his incarnation to be in flesh, the God who was pure Spirit took on a mortal, physical, fleshly body. But then in his resurrection, he retains that body. He, he isn't just raised as a spirit, but he's raised with a body that can eat, that walks, that can be touched. And he's going to retain that body for eternity. What Paul recognizes is the spirit and the flesh, though they are opposed in the present experience, right? He says in later, elsewhere in Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Right? It's true that they are opposing, they want different things. You can only be led by the flesh or by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, it is not going to lead you to destroy or dismiss or ignore your flesh. No, the Spirit loves the flesh and wants to give life to it. That's the pattern we see in Christ, and that's the pattern, Paul says, we should expect the Spirit to lead us on. And the way that it does it, the way the Spirit leads the flesh to glory is by suffering. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. How does the spirit remake? How does it give new life to the body and glorify it the same way it did for Christ through suffering and through death? And this is the lead-in to Romans 8, 18. See this connection here. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, this is not a slogan that's just saying, don't worry about the suffering. It's, it has nothing to do with what's coming. Paul's not like a, a parent telling a child uh, who's upset that his socks don't match on the way to a pool party, just don't, don't worry about your socks. Who cares about that? We're going to a pool party. You're not even going to wear socks. None of this stuff matters. Just let's get going to where we're going to go. Paul sounds a lot more like a coach who's talking to his team about the difficulties of the workouts they're doing now that's going to lead to winning the tournament next week. He's saying this suffering, this difficulty is worth it because it is what leads us to future glory. These are not disconnected. Suffering is the means by which the Spirit brings about glory. And one of the things I think that helps us see is that our suffering today isn't trivial. We don't have to ignore it or pretend it doesn't matter. I think Paul is very aware of the difficulty of the present suffering he's talking about. And if you keep reading, you see the way he describes it, gives weight to it. He, he describes it as something that we are groaning through. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, a whole world, was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Another reference that now the whole creation is groaning like it's in childbirth. We, we mentioned last week that the ch- birth pains are really painful. We don't have to pretend that they are not. The, the picture I get of what Paul is painting here is, um, is the world groaning. And, and I think of a Fangorn forest in Lord of the Rings. Which if those of you who've, who've not seen the movie or read the books, it's, it's this old forest that used to be great and has memories Um, It's almost alive with the memories of what it once was, but it's been diminished and abused, and it carries the memories of that pain so that it's now become this grand but dark and dangerous place. It's described as, as the branches of the trees sigh and sway and groan when there's no wind. And And our world can feel like that in places. Not at every moment, but if you look for it, you're gonna find there is groanings in this world, longing for the remaking and the revealing of what's coming. Andrew Peterson has a song where he he reflects on this um, called Come Back Soon. Let me read you some of these lyrics. He says, I sit on the bench at the bend in the trail, and I can feel in the fall the final exhale. The trees of the field all wring their hands, and the leaves go by like a funeral band. I say, come back soon. If nature is red in tooth and in claw, then it seems to me that she's an outlaw, because every death is a question mark at the end of the book of a beating heart. I say, come back soon. Our world groans, and and though we try to hide it with well-manicured lawns and well-trimmed trees, if you look closely, you will see that on the, the nicest garden or the the most well-kept boulevard. The trees are twisted with memories of storms. 
There's weeds growing up in the flower beds. If you could see inside, you'd find that there are termites eating out the hearts of a number of those trees. This world is not the way that it wants to be, that it's going to be, and it's groaning as we wait for that. We, we hear this groaning. In every mother's wail for a stillborn child, in every orphan hungering for what they've lost, in every ugly divorce, every broken relationship, every word that still cuts in your memory decades later. We are groaning. This whole creation is groaning to be made new. And not only the creation, but Paul recognizes we groan too. Verse 23, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Too often, our smiles are like paint over rot. Our yards and our lives are full of weeds and termites. We have relationships with deep problems under the surface. If you looked at your calendar, you could see scheduled there conflict, disruption, frustration, built into every week. You have histories. We have histories that have hollowed us out like termites and left holes in our hearts. We have a great promise of glory, but we do not always see it. Paul says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope is not seen. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. We're promised glory, but we're waiting and we do not see it. How do we wait? How do we wait with patience in the midst of groaning? This is what Paul gives us hope here. He says, We do not wait alone. Verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Just as our present suffering is connected to our future hope of glory, so God reminds us he is connected to us in our present suffering. We don't wait alone through sorrows, even when we don't know how to pray. Do, do you have sufferings which you just, you just don't know what to ask the Lord for anymore? Maybe, maybe situations coming out of this, this COVID-19 situation. Honestly, I would guess probably not. Probably the ones you've been waiting on the longest have a history much longer than that. Situations in your lives where you, you can't even imagine what God could do to fix it now. You've been waiting and praying and it just seems hopeless. Or people in your life who you don't know what to ask God to do for them any more than just simply God help them. I don't know what else you could do. I have those places. I have Situations I think of in quiet moments or when a song comes on 
with certain lyrics that just stir up memories that bring tears unbidden to my eyes. And I, I can't say what will happen. I don't know. It feels like waiting and groaning. And in those moments, it is helpful for me to remember that God groans with me in his spirit. When I don't know what to say, he is the one going before the Lord with my groanings and praying for me, for that situation. And because of this, Paul can conclude that our hope in the midst of suffering is genuine and that our suffering is not meaningless. Verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Having considered the weight of the world's groaning, Paul dares to hope that everything we see in this world is leading toward our good. I know that can seem like a slogan too, just something to patch on your bumper sticker and say, it's all gonna work out. Everything happens for a reason. But, but do you see that Paul is not just throwing this around lightly? He has justified the weight of this hope. He says this as a coach, reminding us to look towards the prize that all of this is leading for and reminding us that we have a father who is present with us in every moment along the way. My hope for you is that as you, as you pull out these verses, Romans 8, 18, 8, 28, that uh, whatever suffering you're wading through, you wouldn't feel like you just have to slap a smile on it and pretend that everything is okay. But that you would recognize we can endure through groanings with hope. As we walk and bring those groanings to the Spirit, and as we remember that our present suffering is never meaningless. It's never wasted. It is accomplishing all that God intends to bring about future glory and our good. And therefore, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Thank you again. I'll see you guys next week for another edition of School of the Word Online.